Welcome to another edition of Saluting Sister Podcast. On this edition, we will be discussing a case out of Washington, D.C. area. It became infamously known as the Freeway Phantom. So let's get into it. I know um, several podcasters have already done this case, but it is a very fascinating and very heartbreaking case, and I wanted to cover it myself. The killings of the Freeway Phantom started around 1971, and as far as we know, the killing stopped around 1972. In all, there were six victims of this horrible crime. They were of various ages, but one thing that connected them all, well, actually it was two, thinking about it. They were young black females. These young ladies were someone's daughter, sister, niece, and friend. Let me introduce you to the Freeway Phantom victims. Carol Denise Spinks, 13. Darlenia Denise Johnson, 16. Brenda Faye Crockett, 10. Nino Moshia Yates, 12. Brenda Denise Woodard, 18. And Diane Denise Williams, 17. We will be discussing these cases in order of the names mentioned above. So let's get into Carol Denise Spinks' case. Carol went missing on April 25th, 1971. And many of the accounts that I, I had read, it stated Carol went to the 7-Eleven, which was actually across the border in Maryland, to buy some groceries. I believe she was sent there by a relative. And I'm sure Carol's probably done it a million times and probably thought nothing of it. I mean, I have to admit, when I was a little kid, I would do the same thing. From my understanding, she was not supposed to be out and she was quote unquote caught by her mom and sent back home. Unfortunately, she never made it home. Her body was discovered six days later behind St. Elizabeth Hospital on a grassy embankment next to the northbound lanes of I-295. She was sexually assaulted as well as physically assaulted. She had cuts to her face, neck, and chest, as well as both of her hands, and her nose was bloodied. There were green fibers found on her clothing. She was dressed, but her shoes were missing. Darlenia Denise Johnson, 16. She went missing on July 9, 1971. Darlenia was taken as she was heading to her job at the Oxen Hill Recreation Center. There was a report that some people had seen Darlenia getting into an old black car driven by a black male. There were several reports that Darlenia was either with her boyfriend or with an unidentified black male, though neither reports were confirmed. Her body was discovered 11 days later on July 20th. The body was only 15 feet from where Spinks' body was located. Her body was too far decomposed to determine her actual cause of death. They could not even tell if she was sexually assaulted. 
nor were they able to find out if she was strangled. The decomposition was so bad that the medical examiner actually had to cut off her fingers for identification purposes. Darlinia was dressed and her shoes were missing just as the previous victim. Now on a side note, in this part, pretty upsetting as as a mother. Ugh, I hate this part. I have to admit, I have read in several articles that several calls were made that there was a body on the side of the road. I believe police came out twice and quote unquote, didn't see anything. I'm so angry when I read that. I'm still angry as 2022. According to some people, they believe they just drove by and didn't even get out and look. Get out of the car and look. That is your job, police officers. Get out and look. I personally have had instances such as that in this 2022. Do your job. Do your job. That's all I'm going to say. Do your job. I'm sorry. That really makes me angry. But on a side note, I am so grateful that one of the callers went back to the area where the body was and was terribly upset that the corpse was still there two weeks later, rotting in the intense summer heat of Washington, D.C. This time, the caller contacted one of his friends, and this person was actually a police sergeant in the D.C. area who came to the scene on his motorcycle, found the decaying corpse, and let's just say, crap got done. Very upsetting to hear that as a, as a mother. I mean, this poor lady's probably, you know, was looking for her daughter, and here she is. It's actually, you know, that, that could be your sister, that could be your mom, that could be your wife, that could be your girlfriend, do your job. You know, that really ticks me off. I don't like it. It's called lazy. Need to be held accountable, people. Brenda Faye Crockett, 10. She went missing on July 27, 1971. Brenda was the youngest victim of this brutal killer. She had gone to the store to get some items, but she never returned. Brenda's body was found eight hours later on Route 50 in a town called Chevrolet. A hitchhiker actually came upon her body. Brenda was the first body that was found so quickly, and I have to wonder why. I mean, the other two victims were like, what, 11 days, 6 days. This one's a few hours. I mean, something's going on, as we will see. Brenda was sexually assaulted as well as strangled. Several articles I read said, said that her shoes were missing, but it was noted in a, um, in a Washington Post article that she actually left her home without any shoes on. I know probably by today's standards, it's like, what? You know, but I have to admit, I was one of those kids running out on, you know, out on the street with no shoes on. It was a thing, I guess, in the 70s. I don't know. It was also noted that Brenda had a green scarf around her neck. This was used to strangle her. There were also unidentified green fibers found on her body. Many accounts of Brenda's 
disappearance spoke of two phone calls that were placed to her home by Brenda herself. One of the phone calls occurred when the family was out looking for her and the phone was actually answered by her younger sister who was seven at the time. The call came in approximately at 9.20 p.m. She stated that she was kidnapped by a white man and that she was in Virginia and that she was going to be taking a cab home. My opinion was not a white man. I believe suspect is a black male. That's what I believe. I think she's just trying to, you know, or this person is trying to throw them off his track. The second phone call occurred about 25 minutes later. This time she spoke to her mother's boyfriend. She wanted to know if her mother had seen her. The boyfriend responded something to the likes of, how could she see you if you're in Virginia? The boyfriend wanted to speak to this man. And the next thing you know, it was noted that Brenda whispered, well, I'll see you. And that was the end of that call. And to me, that ending is pretty chilling. It is also interesting to note that this victim was the only one that had a phone call placed. I have to ask why. Nino Moshia Yates, 12. She went missing on October 1st, 1971. Nino Moshia went to the local Safeway for some groceries. Now, I had read conflicting reports if she made it to the supermarket or not, so I'm not really sure. Her body was found on Pennsylvania Avenue about two hours later by a 16-year-old boy. I read that her body was found in Prince George's County, Maryland, and her body was still warm to the touch, so she had only been dead a few hours. She was sexually assaulted and strangled. Her body also had unidentified green fibers and her shoes were missing. So as you can see that, you know, the killings, at least me are getting like, like six days, 11 days, eight hours, now six hours. I mean, so something's going on. Brenda Denise Woodard, 18. She went missing on November 15th, 1971. Brenda was out with her friends, but she had left her friends as she transferred buses. Her body was found six hours later on a hospital drive by a police officer, which was just located off Route 202. Brenda was raped, strangled, and stabbed four times. There were wounds to her hands, which confirmed she fought like hell for her life. It was interesting that out of all the victims, she had a note in her pocket. The note read as follows. This is a tantamount to my insensitivity psych to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me if you can. The letter was signed by Free-Way Phantom. The note was believed to be written by Brenda. There was handwriting analysis done and they did confirm it was her handwriting. And for some unknown reason, they do believe Brenda may have known her killer. The last unfortunate victim was Diane Denise William. 
17. Diane had spent the evening with her boyfriend and he walked her to the bus stop and that was the last time he or anyone had seen her. Her body was found several several hours later on I-295 by a trucker who pulled over. I'm going to take a sip of water. She was strangled, and this time her name, Diane, was written on one of her sneakers. And she also had $1.26 in her hip pocket. Six young ladies, not not even one of them out of their teen years, their lives taken from them in an instant. To think that someone could still be out there, or worse, the perpetrator has already passed away and took the answers we seek with him. So let's break the victims down. Young black females, their means of transportation was walking. Four of the victims had the middle name Denise, which I found weird. It could be a coincidence. And two of the girls' names were Brenda. Once again, weird, or it could be a coincidence. The discovery of the bodies became faster and quicker. First, it was six days to 11 days, and then it dwindled down to mere hours. I am not sure why. Could it be that this person couldn't take the victim home or to their desired location any longer? Now, there was a person of interest. Actually, there were several, but this one really, I don't know, this one like really like, like hit the nail on the head for me. I mean, I don't know. But we'll get into this person right now. The main person of interest that I want, I personally want to focus on is a gentleman by the name of Robert Elwood Askins. After researching this person, I have to admit Robert could certainly be the greatest suspect. So let's do a little background on Robert. He was born on January 7th, 1919, and he was listed in the 1930 census living with his mother, Ethel, and his sister. His father passed away on June 17, 1928, when he was only nine years old. So side note, no father figure. At the age of 20, Robert began having run-ins with the law. He was a junior in college, and being a chemistry major, I was a bit shocked because I'm gonna admit, chemistry is a hard subject, people. Although, other side note, I hate, I hate chemistry. I like biology, to be honest. <laughs> but as I read on and learned of his background, it made a lot of sense, especially with the events that occurred on December 28, 1938. On that date, he had made a plan to kill prostitutes. Robert first mixed a bottle of whiskey with potassium cyanide, hence chemistry. He then proceeded to go out and meet a quote-unquote streetwalker. On that day, Robert unfortunately met Ruth McDonald, 31. After they were done, she asked him to pour some whiskey for her and her five friends. From my understanding, these were friends of hers at the brothel. He gladly obliged. 
he suggested they do a toast. He placed his wallet on the table and wanted to reward the first one that could drink it all down. Unfortunately for Ruth, she drank the drink that was laced with the potassium cyanide. She was the only one that drank it. The other lady spit it out. Robert quickly left the premises, but it was too late for Ruth. They did try to administer an antidote, but she passed away a few hours later. Another woman named Ethel Prince also got sick, but she survived. Two days later, on December 30, 1938, he stabbed to death Elizabeth Johnson, 26. He was arrested after positive identification was made to police officials as being her assailant. There is an appellate document online that contained why he had done what he did. Robert was upset that he had contracted a disease. There was no mention of what it was, but here is a chilling direct quote from the appellate hearing. It was his intention, as testified, to give the poison in whiskey, quote, to kill them all at one time if he could, and he further stated his intentions was to kill all the prostitutes in town if possible. Now, there is a whole lot of legal slash medical verbiage in this document, but from what I can gather, in 1939, he was examined and found to be suffering from dementia, precox of the catatonic type. And there was some discussion that it's kind of like, in, in today's terms, like schizophrenia. And they're even going back and forth on that as well. So I'm just going to leave it at, at, at what they uh, called him at, dementia precox of the catonic type. He was institutionalized from 1939 until 1952. It was interesting to note that Robert was an informant for the police department for the vice and liquor raids. A few months after his release from prison, Robert strangled 42-year-old Laura Cook. He was indicted for this murder in 1954. It soon became apparent he was still doing the same crimes as previous. Even though they deemed him, quote-unquote, insane, he clearly was not. He was sentenced for tw um, from 20 years to life. But unfortunately, his conviction was overturned in 1958. Robert was listed in the U.S. Census 1940 and 1950 as a patient-slash-inmate at St. Elizabeth Hospital. At some point, Robert became employed as a computer technician at St. Elizabeth's Hospital. And it was interesting to note that police officials thought at one point that um, the Freeway Phantom could have been an employee of this hospital. And where was the first victim found? Not too far from this hospital. There was a mention during my research that at the age of 57 in 1977, he was charged with the rape of a 24-year-old woman. After the rape, Robert's home was searched in connection to the Freeway Phantom case. I could not find out why they decided to search his home. It was noted that they searched 
his backyard, but it came up empty. I would have been asking for a warrant for that entire house. I'll be cracking attics, crawl spaces, every crack in the world, everywhere. <laughs> I'm sorry. This guy just sounds too good to be true. One thing that stood out to the police officials was that Robert liked to use the word tantamount, tantamount a lot. I believe it is even used in the appellate case by a member of the council or the judge used that word. His co-workers at the time, he was employed by the National Science Foundation, mentioned Robert liked to use that word a lot. I have to admit, I have never even heard of this word and had to Google it. It is certainly not a word I would come up for my like everyday vocabulary. Robert passed away on April 30th, 2010, at the age of 91, while incarcerated in a federal correctional institution in Cumberland, Maryland. He was imprisoned there from the 1970s. Robert has always maintained his innocence and denied being the freeway phantom killer. To me personally, Robert sure sounds like a person that could have done these horrible and terrible deeds to these young ladies in the 70s. His hatred for women alone sends up, you know, chills up my back. Think about the above-mentioned cases. One woman poisoned to death. One woman stabbed to death. One woman strangled to death. One woman raped. Sounds eerily close to those little girls whose lives were taken from them. As of today, 2022, this case is still one of the biggest unsolved murder mysteries in our area and possibly the country. I do hope we can bring closure to the remaining family members that are still wanting and needing answers for, for their law, um, lost loved ones. Sooner or later, the freeway phantom killer will officially have a name assigned to him. The clocks are ticking on this one, and we all want closure for these young, beautiful ladies. Now, um, I do want to mention that some of the details I obtained came from an article that was published by the Washington Post dated May 22, 2018. Six black girls brutally murdered in the early 70s. Why was this case never solved? By Cheryl W. Thompson. If you can get your hands on that article, it is really good, really good article. So I'm very grateful that she wrote it and actually talked to a detective that is still working on this case. You know, she is like retired. She still takes time out because she wants these girls to have closure. And I think they're... The whole world does because it's truly a shame that they had to go in such brutal fashion and didn't have to be that way. So, rest in peace, girls. Rest in peace. <laughs>